You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss JFK, which came out in 1991 and was directed by Oliver Stone. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. November 1960, Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy of Massachusetts wins one of the narrowest election victories in American history over the Vice President Richard Nixon by a little more than 100,000 votes. Kennedy is the symbol of the new freedom of the 1960s, signifying change and upheaval to the American public. That all men are created equal. The degree of mind and spirit that I possess will be devoted to the cause of freedom around the world. Today, the proudest post is Ish It stars Kevin Costner, Sissy Spacek, Joe Pesci, Tommy Lee Jones, J.O. Sanders, Laurie Metcalf, Kevin Bacon, Michael Rooker, Jack Lemmon, Ed Asner, Wayne Knight, Donald Sutherland, John Candy, and Gary Oldman, among many others. The genre would be conspiracy thriller slash courtroom drama. How could anyone possibly review a film like this objectively at this point? The mere existence of this film is political, and that's just the way Oliver Stone intended it to be. By the time he started filming this, Stone had won the Oscar for Best Director twice the previous five years, along with just having convinced a major studio to pony up more than $50 million for him for his last project, which was a 140-minute warts-and-all rock biopic about Jim Morrison, which actually devoted more runtime to rampant drug use than actual music. So clearly, he was a director who had acquired enough power to go even further than just directing a, quote, one-for-me passion project about a subject that he had a personal interest in. He had already done that already six months prior with The Doors, which, to be fair, does have some amazing concert sequences and also features an amazing performance by Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison. JFK was crafted by Stone as a call to action, a three-plus-hour document intended to stir shit up and cast a sharp eye on a pretty cataclysmic event in American history. The last time, hopefully, when the most powerful leader of the most powerful country in the world was assassinated. Stone was determined to delve deep into the who's, what's, how's, and why's behind this assassination, and the conspiracy to cover it up, we think. Because not everything shown during the runtime of this film is based in fact. There's a lot of conjecture and speculation, and even just flat-out dramatic license taken with this story. And to be fair, the official government's story that was released to the public about the JFK assassination, which would be the Warren Commission and its findings, it was always presented to the general public as pretty hazy and conspiratorial to figure out. So that would probably create some great opportunities for a movie. Just as an example, the magic bullet theory. It always seemed a bit too convenient, so what better way to demonstrate its absurdity than through a well-crafted sequence combining real-life camera footage of the shooting alongside a nicely dramatized courtroom sequence using slow motion, close-ups, tricky camera angles, and utilizing two cast members from Seinfeld, no less. The magic bullet 
enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck, wound number two, where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit, wound number three. When I first saw JFK in theaters just under 30 years ago, I was blown away. And of course, I took everything I saw as gospel. I was also 16 at the time, mind you. Now rewatching it, I find some aspects pretty troubling. Our upright hero, the DA Jim Garrison, who is played passionately by Kevin Costner, and with a convincing Southern accent, no less, he's taking on a vast conspiracy overseen by the military-industrial complex, but a conspiracy within which most of the folks on the front lines are presented as either deviant homosexuals and or seditious Latinos, mostly Cubans, determined to tear down our government. Now, even though many of the backgrounds of these characters might have been factually accurate, it's still a bit weird how Stone just lingers so much on their sexual escapades in certain sequences. It's all presented as weird, foreign, and creepy, and I'm gathering that was for dramatic effect as they're supposed to be villains. But why? It's one thing to engage in badinage with all these youngsters, but this sort of thing could be so easily misunderstood. I didn't think much about it at the time. It's just bullshit, you know. Everybody likes to make themselves out to be something more than they are, especially in the homosexual underworld. It adds color to a story which already has no shortage of it. And beyond these scenes, my other main narrative issue with JFK is just how much it delves into, well, actually just slows down into a fictionalized version of Garrison's sieged-upon family life. But we'll get to that later. JFK is first and foremost a crazy, multi-leveled procedural. This is still where the film succeeds, and it's just better off not straying from that. Because this movie just envelops you from the get-go. We're taken right to some narrated background on JFK's presidency, and then events immediately leading up to his assassination. We see this through a mixture of dramatized footage and actual news footage. And the film never slows down from that point forward. Except for those scenes at home with Garrison's family, of course. And so much of the drive for the story not only comes from Stone's filmmaking, helped by intricate rapid-fire editing of so many different types of footage and film stock from Joe Hutching and Pietro Scalia, they just do an amazing job, but also from a dazzling array of powerhouse performances from its powerhouse cast. Gary Oldman is quietly creepy as Lee Harvey Oswald. The late, great John Candy just chews the scenery as a local New Orleans, that's how they say it, attorney implicated who verbally jousts with Garrison in just one memorable scene. Your mouse fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. The government's still breathing. You want to line up with a dead Eat man? My lips, Dino. Either you dance into the grand jury with the real identity of Claire Bertrand, or your fat behind's going to the slammer. Now you dig me. You're as crazy as your mama. Goes to show it's in the jeans. You have any idea what you're getting yourself into, Daddy-o? The government's going to jump all over your head, Jimbo, and go cock-a-doodle-doo. Good day to you, sir. Laurie Metcalf is almost comically relentless, but in a good way, speculating on evidence as one of Garrison's investigators. When he's arrested, Marina buries him with the public. Her description of him is that of a psychotic and violent man. I have too much facts, and facts tell me that Lee shot Kennedy. Kevin Bacon drolly adds some disreputable flavor as a convict witness. The late great Walter Matthau is bringing the heat with a southern twang, 
Tommy Lee Jones, who is the only member of the cast to actually receive an Oscar nomination for this, he saw Pomp and Grift as Clay Shaw, who would be the eventual focus of Garrison's investigation. The late great Jack Lemmon is suitably bug-eyed as a scared witness, and it just goes on and on and on. That's not even approaching one-fourth of the overall major cast. It's just a veritable dream team of top-flight actors, each contributing one memorable moment after another. But to me, the two major standouts are Joe Pesci and Donald Sutherland. Pesci brandishing an outrageous wig, which is true to his character, who has lost his hair, mind you. He plays the hyper-active conspirator David Ferry, who just talks a mile a minute while chain-smoking and constantly downing coffee during two tense sequences where we watch him do a significant amount of the heavy lifting towards explaining the overall conspiracy to kill JFK. At one point, he's pacing back and forth while the camera cuts between him, news footage, and black-and-white dramatizations of secret meetings described by him. Now, whether you can actually follow it all or even buy everything he's saying is besides the point. It's just riveting. Everybody's flipping sides all the time. It's funny games, man, funny games. What the mob, Dave? How do they think in this? Shit, the agency too, man. CIA and the mafia working together, trying to whack out the beer, mutual interest. They've been doing it for years. There's more of this than you could dream. Well, check out something called uh, Mongoose, Operation Mongoose. Mongoose? Uh, government, Pentagon stuff. Uh, they're in charge. But who the fuck pulls whose chain? Who the fuck knows? Oh, what a deadly web we weave when we practice to deceive. And who killed the president? Oh, man, why don't you fucking stop it? Shit, who did... This is too fucking big for you, you know that? This is... Who did the president? Who killed... Get... Fuck, man! It's it's a mystery! It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma! The fucking shooters don't even know, don't you get it? And much of the remainder of the heavy lifting from a conspiracy exposition standpoint, comes around the halfway point of the movie, from a secret informant who meets Garrison at the National Mall, just nicknamed X, and is played by Donald Sutherland. And to hear X explain it, this conspiracy included Vice President LBJ himself, half of JFK's cabinet, much of our intelligence community, Cuban expats, and several active duty officers in the U.S. military. Now, I realize that by this point, JFK the movie has probably lost a lot of folks in the audience, and I get it. It's a tough pill to swallow. And is it irresponsible for any piece of entertainment to take it this far without actual real proof? It's heavily dramatized speculation all coming from some mystery character whose real identity was never revealed. Whether you follow along with this story from this point on really depends on how effective you find the storytelling, plain and simple. And that brings me to the third act, where we watch the actual trial of Clay Shaw who by this point in the movie has been betrayed as guilty of, well, something peripheral to the Kennedy assassination, though we're never 100% clear on his level of overall involvement. And it's at this point where Stone almost seems to be going full-on meta. Through montage, almost every witness testimony is seemingly discredited. So all that we're eventually left with is that now iconic demonstration of the magic bullet theory, a dissection of the Zabruder film of the shooting, and finally an extended, passionate summation of the case that JFK was murdered by a high-level conspiracy. Though I can't really get inside his head, Stone has to know that all of this wouldn't result in a conviction, and he can't obviously alter the real-life outcome of this trial. But it's all very cinematic. You may or may not buy all of it, but it's expertly filmed, edited, and acted. Seriously, Costner has never been better, even if much of what he's doing with his performance is full-on manipulation. I have here some $8,000 in these letters sent... Sent to my office from all over the country. Quarters, 
dimes, dollar bills from housewives, plumbers, car salesmen, teachers, invalids. These are people who cannot afford to send money, but do. These are the ones who drive the cabs, who nurse in the hospitals, who see their kids go to Vietnam. Why? Because they care. Because they want to know the truth. Because they want the country back. Because it still belongs to us. His voice is breaking at times. He's making great usage of those glasses as a prop. And he even looks directly at the camera at one point and says, it's up to you. So that by the time his summation is over, you just really want to believe Costner. Wait, Garrison. Wait, no, Stone. You really want to believe Stone. It's a filmmaker pleading to the audience to take action, bottom line. And it's not the first time this has been done with film, nor will it be the last. And don't forget to text God's Not Dead when you leave the theater. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. There is so much about JFK which is ramped up in the best way, including the editing and many of the performances. It's all very effective at keeping you, the audience member, on your toes, as Stone, as I said, just wants to envelop you into this story. And along those lines, he gets a very big assist from the film's composer, John Williams. Yes, that John Williams, the legend who has given us rousing orchestral scores for the Star Wars saga, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, and the original Superman. As great as these scores are, they are for the most part conventional music for conventional entertainment. But that's not often the case here, even though the central theme of JFK is very rousing and brass heavy. Especially the scenes when we hear someone delving into the conspiracy, Williams' score sounds very different from his others, very sinister. It's heavy on percussion, especially the use of clavis to maintain a steady, tense rhythm running in the background. And this music just builds and builds with a mixture of bass, bass notes on a piano and low strings conveying both dread and mystery. No track demonstrates this better than one titled, you guessed it, The Conspirators. next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. The Oscar-winning actress Sissy Spacek has a truly thankless role as Jim Garrison's wife, Liz. She literally spends at least 70% of her screen time reading Jim the riot act about how he's neglecting his family, all during his DA office's push to file criminal charges related to the Kennedy assassination. Now, Spacek and Costner do as much as they can with these scenes. And in a 1991 context, before scenes like these just became overused as a dramatic crutch in many illegal drama, I can kind of get Stones, along with co-writer Zachary Sklar's, motivation for including them. This is clearly an effort to make Garrison more relatable and sympathetic. But they really add nothing to the story, they just stop it in its tracks, and they're definitely a waste of SpaceX talent. That brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. It's a tough call for me, but this has to be the entire sequence 
where we watch X, who's the mysterious character played by Donald Sutherland, explain his angle on the conspiracy to kill JFK to Costner's garrison as they walk around the National Mall. This extended sequence feels very much akin to Hal Holbrook's deep throat scenes from All the President's Men, but ramped up to 11 as we often see Sutherland's face in full frame as he rattles off all the ins and outs as to how such an obvious assassination would even be possible for a sitting president. We see a lot of backdoor meetings dramatized with grim music from Williams playing over it just to nail the point, and that all works. But what helps make this the most convincing portion of this narrative is simply Sutherland's voice. There's a reason he's done so much voiceover narration over the years. He's excellent at sounding both determined and exasperated at the same time. Now, we never really hear him slow down to even catch a breath, nor are there any dramatic pauses, but you can tell that even he can't quite grasp what he's saying every once in a while when the inflection goes up. This is the delivery of someone who was already deeply cynical, yet taken aback realizing that his cynicism never even really scratched the surface. It's bravura filmmaking with a bravura performance at its center. Sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protests of the unit commander, Colonel Wright. I believe it's a mistake. This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas, to supplement the Secret Service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open empty windows overlooking Dealey, never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages, rolled up newspapers, coat over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. And that brings me to the final category, and that would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. At the end of the day, for all of its faults and the questions that it raises, JFK demonstrates once again that Oliver Stone is a master filmmaker. And as dizzying and sometimes as manipulative as this film can be, it's still amazingly entertaining and engrossing. I can't think of another modern director who would have pulled this off, nor would have even tried. If you look at JFK in the context of today's culture, I'm not going to lie, as I find much of its whole presentation somewhat unnerving. Sadly, it could almost resemble a big-budget, polished version of a YouTube video detailing some tinfoil conspiracy theory. The difference being that I highly doubt that an Alex Jones or Dinesh D'Souza or Dennis Prager could have crafted a video essay or knockoff movie this engrossing. For Stone, this was clearly a personal film and a true passion project expressing a POV to question the official conclusions from the Warren Commission, and the federal government in general. And on that level, it generally succeeds. For as many brilliant collaborators who he enlisted to carry this off, including that amazing cast, this was still Oliver Stone's vision, and for that reason, he is the obvious MVP. Could it just be that we can't wrap our minds around the idea that the most powerful man in the world could be taken out by a nobody? But I can wrap my mind around that, sure. McKinley was taken out by an anarchist. Lincoln was taken out by, you know, he was taken out by a conspiracy, but John Wilkes Booth was a totally emotional man. Assassinations are often done by loners. But not but in this I don't this believe case. so in this case because of all the evidence around Dealey Plaza that day and the autopsy and the gun and the bullet and the thousand little reasons that I'm trying to tell you, too. My rating for JFK is four and a half stars out of five. 
As far as I'm concerned, JFK remains an excellent movie from an excellent filmmaker at the height of his powers. But besides acknowledging its flaws, several of which have not aged well, it's essential to remember that it's still only a movie. Enjoy it, rewatch it, but just remember that if you're looking for the actual truth, it can never be condensed to just one movie, or one YouTube video, or one Facebook post, or one tweet. And if you're looking to find JFK, it's currently streaming on Roku. And that ends another conspiratorial review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.